Welcome back to the New Models Podcast. We're kicking off 2019 with our 10th and most apocalyptic episode. Yes, that means it's about climate change. Our guest is Christine LaRiviere. She works in the intersection of tech, media, and the environment, studying eco-narratives and running digital comms and data for Climate KIC, which is the biggest public-private climate change partnership and a main EU initiative. I'm Lil Internet, joined by Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Let's get right into it. Welcome to the 10th episode of the New Models podcast. Wow. We should be like so I think we should start champagne. using Roman numerals now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is New Models X. Our guest today, uh, Christine LaRiviere. Well done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and Carly Busta, Daniel Keller, and me, Little Internet, in the studio again in Berlin. Um, and our guest, Christine LaRiviere is... Yeah. <laughs> it's not that hard. Christine LaRiviere. Okay, okay. The river. If you can, yeah, it's actually... Christine the river. This is really... You can say, you can say the river. Not that complicated, okay. um, if you wish. Okay, so Christine, though, we've been talking about the end of the world a lot, and Christine, you do global warming stuff, and... Global warming I'm stuff. The ambassador of the end of the world. Yes. <laughs> but Christine has been... Uh, researching climate change and the intersection with uh, media theory and conspiracy theories. And I mean, I think a lot of times we've talked about how the, um, the, the narrative around climate change and getting such those narratives to, to stick is actually one of the biggest problems we face right now. And also thinking about it as an ecosystem. And then there's also this ecosystem of how media works today, yet maybe both are not quite systems as we like to think about it. Interestingly, it's like systems is not complex enough of a description for how climate change and uh, <laughs> how the world as a whole You could say media, media well, systems and ecosystem. System is, an in, is like an insufficient word for right. both of those, those matrixes, those... Mm -hmm. But we should ask, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's ask let's, her. We should ask, yeah, we should ask Christine to, to unpack. <laughs> You're also um, a botanist and also um, uh, a self-trained forager um, of mushrooms and other things. And I think of you as being adjacent to decentralization and crypto and tech. Mm. Is that accurate? Yes? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Christine, what don't you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's super flattering. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess to unpack the systems comment a little bit, I think it's it's... Obviously, the, the major challenge of climate change is the scope and complexity, um, and that it is intersecting with our, our human world and also the natural world, which might not, you know, which are actually intertwined, like human nature is nature. Maybe a way of entering into this is to just meditate for a second on, um, on the idea of system and uh, unpack a bit why system is something that's tied to maybe a modernist or pre-Anthropocene idea of our world and our position in it and why that doesn't quite track anymore. It's hard. I think in my field, when we look at nature, you know, it's not a machine. It's not something that can be... Um, analyzed in such an easy 
or even coherent way. Um, so I think it's, I, I think I'm really drawn to this idea of posthumanism for that reason, where we view um, human nature as nature um, and humans on the same level as plants and animals, essentially. Mm. Um, and once you start looking at things a little bit more this way, uh, you can conceive of ideas around um, like governance of nature, of plants, and like try to almost defer to those intelligences for, you know, just as a, a thought experiment. Um, so just, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a matter of unpacking this systems-oriented thinking a little bit sometimes and moving away from it can be helpful. At least my understanding of the problem with systems generally is not the impulse to systematize, but it's just the lack of data points. And of course, there was all this hope that big data would solve that and we just need more data points. And that didn't really happen. So I do think it's interesting that um, on one hand, a lot of the problems is just the granularity of the systems, right. but there isn't some magical bullet. And so there is something about the way that we conceive of it really inherently that is missing the mark. And I think that is a really like key problem. And I think there's also this impulse to try to quantify things that in this in this just yeah very systematic way that things aren't so easily quantifiable some ways or just you miss data points and you can't quantify them. I just think like to try to actually make like model like how the earth operates in terms of weather and living things, et cetera. It's like you're almost it's like trying to model God or something. <laughs> right. Like and, and how far and how granular do you need to go to get an accurate model? I mean, do you need to act model? It depends model? on your aims, I think. Right. But I mean, you you need to uh, I mean, I always think it's like, oh, do you have to go down to the bacterial level? Do you then have to go to atoms? Do you then get to some quantum <laughs> modeling that ends up Dark matter. Then you're at the singularity, right? And you're building <laughs> right. simulations you're of building everything. Within the territory, etc. Right. No, so, but I think that you have different models of different levels of granularity, and they serve different purposes. And of course, you have to sacrifice, you know, quality for quantity, and use it for your own purposes, and just you know, deliberately ignore the kind of messiness. Right, but that makes sense if you're talking about optimizing a factory. It's a system that humans set up objectively. But when we talk about this shift to smartness, that supposedly can take in a, a vast array of different data points, and it can constantly optimize. You're assuming that the machines have human-level smartness, which is then also assuming the human-level smartness Wait, sorry, is already... Sorry, but why? Why are you assuming that it has human-level well, AI, the data points are set by humans, right? Sure, yeah. And those data points are correlated to what humans can perceive, okay, right? Sure, yeah. So if it supersedes human perception, I mean, yes, of course you have like certain machines which can hear and see and, and detect things that humans can't with their own faculties, but humans still have to have conceived that this thing exists. Yeah, but machine learning, the whole point of it is that they can that you can let them come to conclusions that are very specifically not things that are limited by human intelligence. But but human perception still sets the frame. I mean, I don't Only know. Only in the most, yes, yeah, sure, of course. I mean, I think the example of their recently, we having recently discovered this massive biome under the earth, deep under the earth, with an immense amount of microbial life is something that we had no knowledge of before recently. We couldn't have even speculated about it. It was beyond what we imagined there to have been, uh, the, what was true. So, like, I think that smartness is correlated to human perception, which is just by definition limited. Just the way dogs can hear sounds or can know things or can smell things that are outside of our range of perception. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe even in terms of to your like foraging in the forest or seeing how different complex eco 
matrixes? What do you say instead of systems? What's a better term for it even? <laughs> well, I read recently in an essay, it was called an assemblage or assemblage. Ooh, assemblage. There we go. Oh, yeah, of course, <laughs> right. Mean, yeah, yeah. I, I'm turning it into the French word. It's <laughs> <laughs> very Delusian apparatus. That's what I, I do something. sometimes. Um, That's good. Like but that. yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think to, to speak to an earlier point, and this is the, the real trickiness around climate change and forming climate change policy, is that there isn't a precedent set. So you don't have these perfect systems of data analysis that are set on historical data. It's often projecting forward. It's in its nature necessarily speculative. Um, and this is especially problematic when you look at uh, climate risk modeling, let's say, in financial in the financial sector. Huh. Um, so they're doing stochastic modeling now, uh, which takes into account policy changes, for example. Mm. Um, and this is and this is great, but I think we shouldn't rely too heavily on data modeling. As you mentioned, it gets to be really granular. It gets to be really broad. It's subject to change. I think what we need to do to address climate change is to accept a certain amount of variability, but move forward with what we know, which mm. is that climate change is warming, yeah, <laughs> that, right. climate is, uh, that the climate is warming, that climate change is happening and it's human caused, um, and basically to yeah, move forward from there. Right, that makes, that yeah, makes sense. I, I think it's really interesting that you talk about the risk modeling and it being just an inherently a financial way of looking at things and that and I always am reading these reports about the yeah financial estimates of the g damage to the GDP that climate change right. could cause by 2100 which is just so obtuse and insane right. and ignoring like lots of lots billions of data points. Billions must die. <laughs> yeah, millions must die, but 10% you know, hit on the GDP, you know, some air cities will be flooded, uh, yeah. a lot of droughts, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I just it's crazy how we're unable to grasp something that's so huge. It's just our, our brains are not optimized for thinking and of levels this low. I yeah, I mean, basically, like the IPCC report um, has revealed, you know, where we're at in terms of warming. And as soon as 2040, we reach 1.5, which is, you know, it'll make the California wildfires look like child's play, the heat right. wave in, in the EU look minimal. Um, almost all the coral reefs will die out at that point. Um, and then, you know, reaching towards the end of the century, it'll get to 4C, which is where, like, half the, the global grain supply disappears. Mm -hmm. So we, we won't really be talking about GDP, GDP at that point. Right. Insects are even long enough, <laughs> around long enough to pollinate these yeah. crops. I mean, I, I don't want to sound too apocalyptical, but there's likely an increase in, in civil unrest at a, at a global I level mean, because clearly. food security is is completely damaged, yeah. I mean, so, this is already obviously happening, and we're going to talk about this about in France, but I think we can go, I mean, the Arab Spring, to me, that seemed to be like, I mean, there's a multitude of reasons for that, but it started off as a food riot. It started right. because of commodity prices spiking in 2011, and that had a lot of other things to do with it about monetary policy in America, and of course, that's how systems are complicated, etc. Right. but it was really the first wave of this sort of climate migration, and right. you can just see that being the case. And when you, when you hear Trump... At one point, whatever. Okay. His little Trump, wall. Yeah, Trump and his walls, but he proposed building a wall across the Sahara to the to the Spanish president. <laughs> and, and to me, it's almost oh, a it's almost just a beautiful. Yeah, it's like it's true. okay, walls are always metaphorical, but right. here it really right. like that makes the the climate nature of this catastrophe so stark to me and that's totally. what's happening that's what's happening in the southern border and in general and uh yeah so okay so case in point of a system that's so like multifaceted it's almost impossible for the human the average human brain to 
comprehend all of it at once, to hold all of it at once. Therefore, it's very difficult to model. Mm -hmm. You can model sea level change. You can model like uh, crop changes. But to hold all these different factors together in, in one, one sheet seems impossible. So I wonder if you can speak a little bit to why it's so, you know, it's obviously every single person on this globe has experienced some effect of climate change, whether it's having to run the air conditioner longer or not having one and suffering more, or whether it's having, you know, had your property wiped out whatever yeah you know feeling really sweat really a little no, verklempt I, I was trying to say you know there's there's no, the, totally. there's, the, there's a range of it, it. I, I just yeah. don't think there's anybody who's like you know basically like cognizant of their surroundings who hasn't experienced hasn't noticed something change we're in a position where we can communicate with each other across the globe knowledge share more easily than ever before yet it seems more difficult than ever to sort of come up with a global think about this thing, which is so empirically obvious, where every human has some evidence of the climate changing rapidly. So I wonder if you have some thoughts on why it is so difficult to communicate this massive problem in an effective way. Yeah, I mean, definitely it is, it is this issue of scale. Being, being a global problem, it is, you know, affecting different regions differently. Different regions have different exports. Um, so there's going to be a lot of divergent interests from country to country. Um, and then this is something, you know, we've seen at COP24 this year, for example. COP24 being? Uh, the, this is the UN Climate Summit. Uh, basically, the call to action is to adopt a higher carbon tax at a global level. And just to, to add some perspective there, um, the carbon tax they propose is around 5,000 per ton. Um, and it's currently around eight dollars for 10 so so this is a huge shift um where what is the governing body to enforce any type of global anything this is the this mm -hmm. is just what i keep coming back to these mm -hmm. kind of global problems it's the same thing with tax evasion they just are they seem intractable without a global totalitarian state honestly i can't see how you can enforce these kind of things interpol interpol is not up to the task how to mobilize right uh the world essentially on this issue is is the million dollar question right. so it's it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I think a lot about the intersection between fellow effects and motivation. Right. Um, but along with that comes um, fears and anxieties around climate refugees, for example. Right. Um, and so I wonder how these two things will interplay. Like, I'm sure someone could come up with an interesting model to reflect <laughs> this, um, these shifting uh, influences. I mean, it, you're going you're gonna to tailor the communications to different segments of the population. Right. So, you know, for one group, it may be that it's an, it's an innovation challenge. Um, from, for another group, if you're looking at working class individuals, there needs to be a concept of just just transition of their jobs. Right. Uh, so from, you know, if you're a coal miner, you need to feel as though your job is secured and there's like a segue into working for a renewables company that right. feels fair. Um, and then, with, you know, the bottom line is really livelihood and family for a lot of people. And so I think an important point is also this real understanding that this is affecting us in our lifetime, but mainly it's going to affect your children in a way that's disproportionate and right. um, the scale of, of suffering um, for the children and for people's grandchildren is is like inconceivable to us um, yeah. and there needs to be clarity around that and it's it's a dark point but it needs to be pushed forward and it needs to be understood um, and so something like the IPCC report points to that um, yeah. but it needs to be unpacked and made accessible to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I do have trouble when people are being like, corporations are the ones that are emitting 70% of the things. So, and that's true. Like, influencing powerful groups like that and changing their behavior, it's going to have more of an individual impact. What I do wonder, though, is how, 
when our entire entire world is based off of basically this understanding that the rational economic actor working in their self-interest is cumulatively going to come up with the best solutions for things. And we're in situations, again, climate and again, yeah, tax, global tax evasion and these kinds of things. These are things where your personal incentives are never aligned with your goal. And let's say you really want, you care about your kids. That is your goal. You want your kids to be comfortable. That's not going to make you recycle more. That's going to make you hoard more mm-hmm. and make sure that your kids have more material wealth in the future. And I just feel like I don't know what, narrative i don't know if it's a narrative shift it has to be something so much more fundamental in that of a of being away from a market economy in this kind of sense of things for it to for people to even be able to interface with this i, I don't know no totally i think i think there needs to be i mean this is what makes the problem so intimidating because there needs to be a mass mindset shift mm-hmm. um which is moving away from uh like excessive exploitation of resources or the perception that resources natural resources are unlimited um, and just the wastefulness towards a more what's considered a circular economy. Um, but this is, <laughs> this is a tall order. Yeah. It's, uh, like, it's just so not <laughs> happening right mm-hmm. now. It's the opposite. I mean, I just look at, I can never pronounce Is it Bolsonaro? How do you pronounce his name? Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro. In Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. Oh, Brazil. Mm-hmm. Bolsonaro and his, yeah, these extractive policies, like that's who we're electing are people who are like, Drill, baby, drill. Mm. Uh, even Obama is bragging about how America is now the top oil producer, and finally we've got weaned ourselves off of the addiction of foreign oil. Mm. I, I, I just feel like we're, we're so not going in that right direction. Even the people who ostensibly would be for it, I, I don't know. Is there been any impending danger to humanity a decade out, say, that we've actually overcome? Nuclear war. But that was it. like chance. We didn't happen. We didn't like stop. We haven't in- gotten rid of nuclear weapons. It just didn't happen. Like we avert. Um, it seemed really likely at some point, and it's way less likely. But no, sure, you're right. I it mean, didn't. It didn't end. But in some ways, I mean, the crisis that we're looking at is unprecedented That's in human sure. time. Yeah, right. Right. Which is I why mean, I think the temporal aspect of it is what's the craziest part. Like the uh, plastics seeping into water and seafood and everything like that. People got more motivated around that issue and actually did something about it than they did about climate change. Wait, what? Who? What? Well, because ocean? they could do something about well, that, it. That, in a that's way. actually no. a really is good it, example. Is something being done about that? Humans were found to be passing microplastics yeah. through the body. Um, this is very jarring information, obviously, and I, I guess it struck a chord. I mean, people really. Um, make fun of the whole straw ban thing, and I, I mean, I <laughs> like this is I I agree uh, to a certain extent, but this is a kind of interesting example of mm. a somewhat silly focused thing that somehow became symbolic of a movement that like actually pushed people to consider, you know, the problematics around plastics and really start activism around this. And so, like the, like there has been leeway in this regard. I think obviously the big thing to tackle here. Are fossil fuels, and there's so many, there's so much more like vested interests around that, and that's that's the challenge here. I mean, also a win on the the ozone layer depletion and the aerosol and, and things like this, but I think the oil industry is is such a a big one to tackle. But I think looking at the uptick in divestment, uh, looking at the uptick in renewables, there is at least you know to to be a little optimistic here, there has been progress there. Mm. I mean, do you think we need like a, I mean, maybe it just is going to take like a really personal, like immediate disaster though. Like, what do you think the first, like what's going to be the first 
like actual slap in the face that might get because I think that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take like a year where there's like thirty hurricanes that all like destroy like unprecedented amount of or, like things. an entire continent's crop is lost. Right, exactly. Like what, what, or what, the luck of many things happening in different parts of the world. Yeah, but that's already. But the problem. But then it's too late to do anything. That's the mm, problem. Well, I mean, do you, is, do you think yeah. there is going to be a warning sign, like something? Like, what do you think of the first emerging things that'll happen are that could be motivating? Although, of course, they'll have to. The California fire should yeah. already yeah. been. Yeah, I mean, why the California it, fires. Yeah, yeah, it's when you get a, a tipping point of the melting of the ice caps, and so major cities will flood, potentially New York. Um, so That'll, that's. That'll help. That would, <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, then, yeah. then the media will be like, oh, my God, I have to go through, I have to wade yeah. through water to go to work. This is horrible. And this this speaks to the power of, of narrative, right? I mean, Definitely. New York is, yeah. is the setting of so many blockbusters. Yeah, I mean, how much it, we this, hear about the subway system sucking there. Like, clearly, the New I mean, Yorkers Sandy are good was, at expressing like, you their You know, complaints. being in, in New York during Sandy and during the blackout of 2003, I mean, both of those, for people who work in the media there, those were very good, like, LARPs, let's say. Yeah. And for some people, not LARPs at all. They were very, very real. Um, to the point where I know there's been a lot of, I mean, you probably know better than I do, Christine, but there's been a lot of resilience programming there in terms of their, like, basic building code. Like, all servers must be above the second floor or first floor, all um, generators must be above yeah. a certain height. I remember or, all the uh, insurance fraud in Chelsea where they had all, oh, the, all, of, all of that unsold paintings that yeah. unfortunately in the basement all ruined. Yeah. Goddamn. Yeah, all those. Yeah. Yeah, all those <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so, I mean, I think that that but I think again, it's like in New York. Okay, people have already gone through that fantasy. They're very, they are very aware of it. Even Wall Street, Wall Street was flooded. I mean, the financial district was flooded. Um, but uh, I mean, sort of this idea of time is super interesting to me because, again, getting back to this question of systems and the human system being a not comprehensive enough one, the scale that we're thinking of a century, even a thousand years. I mean, that is, you know, what's the great like line where they say human beings have been on Earth. If Earth was like a year calendar, right. we've been here since 1259 on December 31st. I mean, so what scale are we even thinking of? And there's something that's really kind of crazy to me is, is that I know how short human life on Earth is in the history of Earth. That plus this incredibly rapid tipping point that right. we're experiencing. I mean, we really are. I mean, it's like the acceleration is is insane. We're looking at 10 years out, we're going to have a different ecosystem. 10 years out. And so that is very hard to reckon I mean, with. Um, I mean, the, one of humans' big innovations was that we could prepare for the winter and store <laughs> grain. Yeah. You know, like that right. was, we we're like, right. whoa, we can think ahead a year. Right, right. We're, okay, and uh, yeah, we were building cathedrals for a while, so there was yeah. some kind of unifying thing that allowed us to do one thing for a few hundred years right. at once. Since then, no, it's about quarterly earnings reports. Right. It's ever in, ever decreasing time for, uh, time intervals that we're actually considering for the most part. There are this, what's this organization called, the... With this long, the thousand-year clock. Do you know what I'm oh, talking about? Um, it's there. There is this institute in San Francisco. I actually visited them, and they're basically all. It's all dedicated to try and re rejig our thought into thinking about these deep, deep time cycles. But that is just not and intuitive. Then a thousand isn't even deep time. A thousand. Yeah. And who's the last person to think about a thousand years? Yeah. Um, Hitler, you know, and oh, yeah. it's about like how ruins will look in a thousand years. It's not about wow. like how systems will exist. I mean, so that's one of the biggest, I mean, aside from scope, which I think humans have a really hard time adjusting for. I mean, time is the other big one that our, our sense of time, we try to apply as the, 
as if that's like the standard of how time is perceived or how time operates on. And it's like if you look at a plant in like super fast motion, it's it's plants are basically animals in slow motion. <laughs> like when you like look at the way they move and like look for things, and if you look at the way they move, like you realize how vast of a of a variation there is in like how. Time, time, time like, scales. Yeah, the scale of time. Of course. But can we ask a question to, to you, Christine, to you mm-hmm. then, with this point that you just made, Dan, about, you know, we now think in quarterly earnings. Right. And, you know, even even Elon Musk famously like said, daily like... daily closing times. Or daily closing times, right. Closing you know, CNN prices, is a whole period, right, like yeah. the bell, right? What is some of the strategy of overcoming this daily or quarterly earnings type mindset on a policy level? It's, I mean, certainly transforming the economic sector is a mandate and just from a pragmatic perspective like we need to catalyze change there because it does drive so much but I think from a policy perspective I don't know if this speaks exactly to your question but one thing we focus on a lot um, and that has been proven to work more is um, scaling back from the national level and going to the city level Hmm. and contacting mayors directly, engaging citizens. Um, So we have a program called Climathon, which is uh, a 24-hour hackathon that we run in cities around the world. Um, And this year we had over 5,000 participants, over 100 cities participated, and it was really interesting to see these social media posts from around the world um, of yeah, generally it's youth engagement, but people from all ages can join. And you basically work with your city government on a particular climate problem that your city is experiencing. So a city like London might tackle air pollution, for example. Tallinn, Estonia might tackle transportation. Uh, so you have yeah these different problems. And I think this is one way from like a microcosmic level um, moving outwards to the macro, to the national level. This is potentially an effective approach. Um, decentralization in a sense and it makes sense too because it's like well uh, nimby effects obviously is like that's where people care about environmentalism and this is a way of making your personal values aligned with the greater good and actually that makes a lot of sense it's also patchwork logic applied also and you know young person leaving university is more likely to move to a city that is optimizing for i don't know good resilience or good like climate foresight that's kind of what i was talking about like what's going to be the slap in the face because i I think that besides this being like a, a totally global like hugely macro problem like the i think the only way we're going to make progress against it is getting people to start thinking of it thinking of it on a purely individual like on the most micro level i think the slap in the face is going to have to be something that kills a bunch of rich people in one fell swoop (laughs) honestly because and this is something we haven't talked about but uh yeah we're gonna i guess we should eventually talk about france but a lot of these things which yeah there should there be a greater carbon tax of course should there be a gas tax there should be much higher gas taxes right but how do you make that progressive and how do you not make that just lead to fascism well how do you not just put that burden on on the working class the class least equipped to actually shoulder it and and that's what's going to happen that's what all these solutions are and it's going to backfire and it's what we're seeing i mean how do you also make the climate change not just this bourgeois problem which in the 80s patagonia 90s it was very much styled as right. like a fish concert like bumper yeah, sticker no, poor people are do not care about the bigger picture like that because they, they do can't, care about it well, but they can't well, think on those time scales if they're if you're if you're hungry right, you are you're not exactly, thinking about right, it. Right, right. if you're legit I mean. if you're legit in poverty right you have personal concerns which are immediate you don't have bandwidth right, to take on right. like how to yeah. solve and so, Saudi then, what, the, so as, as opposed to these sort of coercive measures like you can look at this you know behavioral economics and this nudge theory and potentially incentivizing sorts of behavior or these kinds of ways of working at it and i think like that's the only way you actually get people to 
to do things that Ocasio. are maybe not against their personal. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. But. Um, I, and on the other side, though, uh, more on the dark arts side, how, like how can shame play into this? Mm-hmm. Like, do you think there's mm-hmm. a way to actually like publicly motivate a, a a campaign of sort of shaming the the people who violate this, or shaming like wasteful celebrity behaviors, or really kind of uh, making it so that people start to feel a bit more alienated or like they're breaking a taboo by actually being wasteful or being a director of an uh, oil company or something. Maybe making those people more like villainizing them more in a public eye. That's a super interesting (laughs) question, actually. Um, So I don't know. I think um, we mentioned earlier that uh, environmentalism carries a lot of baggage with it um, from a social, economic and physical level. so this has yeah, portraying something as someone or something as villainous. It has been explored in the past, I suppose, to varying degrees of success. It worked with Hummer, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. nobody drives Hummers anymore. Right. Like it started That's to become true. a shameful thing to drive. But Land Rovers, it's a million in Midtown. Yeah. <laughs> so and there, there was the, the very specific things like that. True. Yeah. There's an interesting example here in Germany, right, with Volkswagen and the the compromised data around emissions. Yeah. Sure. Um, that. People. Shame works on Germans. Though. They obviously are <laughs> well, guilt-based. Right. Lutheranism. I mean, it's all it's all there. That, that, yeah, that researchers speculate pushed uh, Germany into more renewable practices around cars, electric, uh, electric vehicles, and so on. Um, so I think that there, a certain amount of that could could be effective. But I think what is going to be more effective is uh, people feeling that they can be personally involved. I mean, we, it gets down to psychological levels of like how to, how you find meaning in your life. And, and this sounds a little bit precious, but it is around, um, feeling as though you're contributing to a cause that's greater than yourself. Uh, and this, there's a whole tangent here about, uh, secular life and, Mm -hmm. you know, how this interplays with, with climate change. But I think, um, there are some really interesting thought experiments, movements around these narratives emerging, like solar punk, uh, which is yeah, uh, yeah, which is sort of a version of cyberpunk, right? That um, privileges renewables, green activities, a lot of community-oriented activity, uh, inclusiveness, um, and and this is just an interest. This is just sort of the beginning, and I think this is maybe the better way to approach it. Um, there is a lot to be said about. Uh, archetypes. Uh, mm-hmm. I read this really interesting article recently about shamanism, of all things. But but stay with me. Um, essentially, no, tell us more. Essentially, when um, humans are met with a certain amount of uncertainty, uh, where there's no precedent to draw pen to create, uh, what we do is simulate realities in our minds. So, say you're preparing for. Um, a job interview, you're going to imagine the way you're going to conduct yourself in the interview based on your own history of previous interviews, let's say, or advice from your parents, etc. But with something like climate change, it falls into this example of of the unexplained or the unknown. Uh, There's no precedent for it. So what happens when you your human brain is faced with a situation where you don't have a simulation, it starts to add noise to past solutions uh, until you arrive at something that could be effective. And I think this is maybe what innovation looks like. Say more. Say more yes. about this. What do you mean by add noise? It sounds super interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I don't really know what this looks like. What happens in societies that are faced with uncertainty, um, natural disasters, for example, is they tend to defer to 
shamanic uh, leaders mm. uh, to magic um, to try to uh, create like approximate solutions or imagine different solutions to essentially think outside the box. Well, and I mean, which gets us out of the system question, right? Mm-hmm. So we're in an irrational place, which doesn't correlate to the system that we have been abiding by. Um, but moreover, sometimes you just you just need somebody to give you an idea and then you can fill it with meaning mm-hmm. because you have a decision fatigue and you just need someone to give you like, you know, a randomized answer and then you will fill in the meaning and the energy to make that one effective or that direction to go. Yeah, exactly. And what, what shaman shamanism or, or these kind of leaders tap into are these um, archetypes, let's say, that we're evolutionarily predisposed to. So archetype of the mother, the enemy, uh, the hero's adventure, which is yourself. And this is seen, I think it's Joseph Campbell's work on storytelling oh, yeah. ties this in. And this is maybe where I get, you know, meander back to this concept of a climate narrative that might be effective is leveraging these archetypes in a way that's meaningful, um, that you can apply meaning to your own life as your own hero's journey with regards to climate. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. I mean, I was really struck by when we went to this conference the other week, uh, Revision by Amatus or whatever, and how they there seemed to be a pretty much a strong consensus for the need to develop a new kind of religion or spirituality mm-hmm. as. I mean, and it's Even Matt and Avery, Matt Listen, Avery singers, well, like, exactly. new see, crypto Although version. that thing I mean, was like, ruse, how can we yeah. make a pyramid yeah, scheme? Yeah, 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 <laughs> but, yeah. but just, just the idea that religion although, was the superficial... Sh- totally. You know, well, of course. And I mean, uh, crypto is a good analogy of that. It is some hyperstition, some religious belief that sort of self-actualized itself into existence. But no, I do think if there's anything that's been proven to force humans to make really stupid individual actions <laughs> in the sake of a greater good, uh, the crusades or spending, I don't know how many resources building a cathedral instead of feeding yourself. It's this kind of thing. But I feel like those types of morale, I mean, fandoms, we have fandoms now, but but they're not guilt-based. And I feel like guilt-motivated religion, that doesn't seem to work anymore. I mean, Catholicism is popular in some parts of the world still, but it's basically dead. Like It's fu- functionally dead. You're saying like Buddhism, where one sort of that's there are other cover. types of popular, yeah, so, movies that are not guilt-based or not based off of these sorts of rules. We're all looking for the sacrificial, like, Jesus figure. I mean, look at cancel culture, right? Well, right. So in some ways, like, we are still organized. People still that. love a martyr. That's true. But I don't think people are motivated by guilt. Or a scapegoat. Maybe way. nature right. is the martyr. And in this case, that can mobilize. But I just wonder, what would a compelling religious... Yeah, what would it be to not be cringe? And like the closest thing I can see to that is this Anne Prim thing, but that's of course completely nihilistic and basically resigned to there being catastrophe. How do you how do you cope with that? And the endgame of Anne Prim is like prematurely like refute all natural collapse, conveniences collapses, and yeah. already live the collapsed state. Already right. live accelerate like, like, the collapse. Anne Prim is anarcho primitivism, by the way. Yeah, we're yeah. gonna keep. For the, we're gonna probably mention it every there. episode, but let's just. <laughs> we're, so, we're soon gonna do an Anne Prim LARP at some point. Yeah, we really want to. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, so I just wonder, like, what? Maybe it's more important, and I, I always think of this, and I think about like progressive politics in general just in terms of like hospice care because we are in such a fucking dire strait and it does not really, I mean, I have not, uh, not to say anything negative, but I haven't heard any solutions yet in this podcast as far as what's going to solve that. And well, I really, I'm gonna, really we're going to ask you this, we're gonna though, get I some. actually do we're want before some. we, I do want to What I wonder is that. like, is then the solution that we need to just find coping mechanisms with accepting our mortality and accepting that this actually is an extinction event? And like, 
how and self-care and these types of really neoliberal things and maybe that is the best we can do i don't know let's write scranton that's worth wondering about that's all do you think that the they like the reptilian uh master overlords mm. um uh, mm. uh, dan triple is looking for the parentheses <laughs> i'm looking for those triple parentheses running joke sorry, sorry, okay sorry. okay so the basically the idea for people who are uh, extremely extremely wealthy and uh, high up in geopolitics and whatever global multinational corporation level people c-suites do you think that cuz I have I suspect that they basically want climate change to happen, wipe out a whole b- big part of the population. They're going to be extraordinarily wealthy anyways, and then they can rebuild this sort of automated luxury perfect earth while getting rid of like Billions a couple billion must die. people. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a, do you think do you that's think that's true that's like what they i mean i don't mean that, I, that is true like that's what they think i know i mean i i okay you, yeah 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 no that's a valid that's a valid fear is what, what do you I'm what do you think what yeah. i i agree i mean that <laughs> I, i'm perhaps that's a little bit cynical myself but i i yeah absolutely i mean the this is a, there's certainly a really important class intersection here um but also like uh intersections of, of race you know and, and like so Coastal communities are disproportionately affected by climate change. Rising sea levels, for example, is like just the beginning. And I think, yeah, it's really, really difficult to incentivize the super rich Western population around changing their life, even changing their lifestyle, but even like in a drastic way. I have an example, though, that maybe fits into shaming. Like, (laughs) what about shaming beef? That's happening. Yeah. It should. And more and more I'm seeing this narrative because beef is like the most wasteful, like inefficient, polluting meat. Then you have people who hold fast to it, like Jordan Peterson. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's true. You can tell his testosterone levels are yeah, he's, really high. <laughs> he definitely seems really happy these days. He's enjoying life. Yeah. yeah. Poster child for but, You know what's funny, though, is I, I remember that, and I've probably mentioned this on the cast before, but anyways, but Vitalik, he only will... Uh, eat beef because from a from like a net cumulative effect of suffering far fewer cows suffer than the chickens i've thought about this because if i eat oysters it's like 28 souls like i could right. eat in a night Did and I beef it's like souls one, i'm not sure uh, i'm like all about speciesism though and i do think that cows have more feelings than chickens i agree and oysters and i have more empathy for them because their faces look more like mine. I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like that. I mean, okay. I, I mean, all of the insect protein stuff that's being pushed pushed on us by shadowy elites <laughs> beyond like, meat. That's reptilians. <laughs> reptilians love insects. They're already insects into anything. it. Exactly. But all the insects like, are gone. Insect apocalypse. No, no, no. But, so, they're, they're breeding insects uh, for they'll our breed Reptilians insects. run the world yeah, government. Not- insect apocalypse. Notice a correlation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, pivoting for a second, maybe pivoting for a second. Um, you're you've done some recent work. Um, you wrote this essay that was dealing with um, conspiracy theories on the one hand, and also <laughs> Great good low key transition there, actually from reptilians to uh, eating all the world's insects to conspiracy. Okay, non pivot, totally relevant, perfect pivot. Go ahead, that's great. <laughs> to and, and climate change, 
I mean, okay, maybe maybe it would be interesting to hear like to hear you speak a little bit um, uh, about that essay, although you've probably done that a lot. Um, but you know, so I was talking with um, with Jules before the cast, and we were saying, you know, climate change is like a completely mainstream issue. It affects everybody. It's fully in the mainstream, and yet at least through English-speaking media, we're still meant to think that it's a fringe issue in some way and that these are hoaxes. Climate change is a hoax. And I wonder like, what some of the strategies are in our post-truth time um, of, of making sure that, that, like, allowing people to say crazy things about climate change that are true and having them believed as truth. How, how is that negotiated? Wait, sorry. I, w- I want to make sure we clarify this framework, though, because I did argue that accepting climate change as human caused and happening is is a mainstream narrative. But I, I mean, I, I don't read every newspaper all the time. Uh, Christine, I mean, for the most part, do the mainstream media, like the the big newspapers and things in papers that are part of conglomerates, they're all ubiquitously do support that climate change is happening, right? Is it really the realm of alternative press and conspiracy theory that it's not? Or do you, is there still kind of narrative seeding of of skepticism in mainstream media? Because I don't want to start out with a faulty premise. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. So, um, of course, opinion on public opinion on whether or not climate change exists and whether or not it's human-caused differs from country to country. And especially there's a great distance between the United States and Europe or, or Canada or a lot, a lot of other parts of the world. Um, so it's, a, it's perhaps a bit of a dated study, but in 2012, it was one-third of Americans believed that climate change what human caused climate change was a hoax, which is which is a I'm high dirt. percentage. Wait, that, what year was that? All, 2012. All the, okay, but all of these surveys, when you read about it, like thirty percent of Americans believe in literal hell or angels or etc. That's true, right? And America, yeah. Americans entertain wild yeah. ideas. It's right. one of our. But and still, the other, it's crazy though. Yeah, yeah, but essentially, also there, like in Europe, you have I think it's like eighty-eight to like ninety-eight percent of people believe in climate change, that it's human cause, a very high percentage, but yet you do have, um, in France, let's say the Gilets Jaunes, like which we, we touched upon, who are advocating for lowering the carbon tax or getting rid of it. There is, I think like a 73 or a 78, like a very high percentage of support for that movement actually in France, despite belief in human caused climate change. So you have this, uh, you know, some incoherence in, in belief and action, um, across different countries. And so, um, yeah, from speaking from a conspiracy theory angle and how online platforms might proliferate that, I mean, it's it's nothing new that um, social media platforms optimize for engagement. Often this is ethics agnostic or like ethics blind. So it's, uh, you know, often things that are very incendiary. Um, so that does privilege uh, hoax-related content, uh, climate change hoax-related content. And um, yeah, I mean, I see this every day. I manage so- social media accounts related to climate change, and there's a stream of denial um, wherever you go. And it's and it's so clearly um, supported by the platform. So one thing I advocate for is the responsibility of these so-called, you know, left-leaning climate change-aware companies like Facebook or Twitter to actually adjust their algorithms or address this in some meaningful way because this is their you know, they're contributing to the proliferation of this. I mean, of course, one thing we were seeing with the Gilets Jaunes was that, okay, you have a legitimate gripe of the people, and then you have external sources, Russia, but also others, um, creating troll accounts to uh, 
quote, quote, support this movement because they know it puts pressure on the stability of the nation and their interest is, you know, breaking up these, uh, the, the, the Western power structure. Um, and so as somebody who does manage, you know, a climate change social media, related social media, how do you on a daily basis deal with um, troll accounts or people who seemingly are backing up your cause but are coming from, I don't know, you have to accept a certain level of that kind of engagement or? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, Working, working for the EU, it's, I can't, you know, it would be very uh, problematic of me to suppress um, or censor any of these opinions or even, so I don't do that. I do have to leave them out. But at the same time, um, there are things you can do to just continuously expose people to the correct information. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, again, this, this does go a little bit back to these kind of actions being supported by the social media companies. So for example, um, when people are, see a climate change hoax video on YouTube um, and they're exposed to that and their opinion has changed, uh, studies prove that if the correcting information is provided in the sidebar in a related video, uh, then they, they will change back. Um, so there, there's a lot to be done just at a content exposure level. Uh, Super interesting. Yeah. I was going to mention too, in, in your essay, you mentioned the uh, that study by, uh, I don't know if you know how to pronounce her name correctly, Zenit Tafik. She? Uh, Zeneb Chifechi, yeah. Yeah, yeah Zeneb <laughs> Chifechi. She's a good journalist. Yeah, yeah uh, showed that, you know, YouTube generally, the recommendation algorithms will always recommend you to something more extreme as opposed to yeah. uh, right, uh, right. whichever direction you're going. And um, Generally, no, generally red pill direction. But that's yeah. actually also a weird thing, too, especially with all the accusations of Google being biased towards liberals. But if you change that algorithm to if you're watching something, that it would recommend the debunked video <laughs> right after. I mean, that could cause a huge, like, massive change in people's yeah. opinions and perspective on things. Yeah. I mean, it would open up a, a mise on a beam of debunked, debunked videos and debunked, debunked, debunked <laughs> videos. But still, I think that's it's actually at least fosters debate instead of this runaway train into like Crazyville. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think all these things are really interesting solutions, but I just can't escape my extreme sense of fatalism about all of this stuff. And all of these things just seem like little bandages. I have a, I have a, a mantra which is probably in line with that, which is that. Well, it was taken from an Italian Marxist hmm. of all things, but it's um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, mm -hmm. and that's with my work. I have to just internalize that, and yeah. it, it does um, yeah. to hold those dual extremes in your mind constantly. It cuts you up. You yeah. know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. dissonance for sure, and I feel mm -hmm. like that's something that's I suffered in the art world for sure of this pretense of doing this liberatory Marxist work, and you're just in part of the most corrupt capitalist system you could possibly imagine. It's the same. I yeah. can imagine working in climate and just... I, I went to this climate conference in 2008 and I have felt really bad about the climate ever since then because the consensus then was like, if we weren't by by 2018, I guess because it was 10 years ago, large-scale carbon recapture, sequestration, completely changing things, that we would be fucked. And we've... Yeah. Nothing like that the has happened at all. The Club of Rome in 1972 was we, like... Right, and we can't even <laughs> have a functional test of a carbon capture system. We don't even know if that kind of stuff works. So I just... I don't see how... I, I, don't, I don't think that means that little changes don't matter. They all accumulate, but... The time I, so crunch. I mean, I'm the gonna, time crunch. Yeah, I'm going to get a little... I don't know. Okay, I'm not... <laughs> when I'm a feminist. Yeah. I... 
So ecofeminism would unpack a lot of this um, around gender, of course. Uh, so you have, uh, what's interesting, I think what you and I, Carly, discussed a little bit in the thread was like the, the sort of solutions that are proposed that people are the most excited about, uh, which is carbon capture, terraforming Mars, yeah. solar geoengineering. They are uh, very mask, if that's what you're going for, yes. <laughs> um, they're very mask, uh, you know, and they're all very exploratory uh, and, and very, you know, um, very much about being the first to do something. And I think that's, that's the energy that shapes our world at the moment. And that's why people are excited about cryptocurrencies and decentralization. Um, but, y y you know, what's, what's interesting about this is that 37% of the Paris Agreement goals can be achieved through nature-based solutions like reforestation. Wow. And, and this is, uh, you know, uh, healing, fixing things. Wow. <laughs> Less desirable, um, you know, intellectual projects, perhaps, in the way we view them currently, but are actually the most pragmatic at this point. And they're tangible, actual paths we can take, but they would require, like, renegotiating property rights. They would require, like, right, things that are, like, uh, less exciting from the blockbuster film point of view, less, like, not as interesting not pitch decks. It's not just reforestation. It's that in co combination with like, huge sacrifices of personal comfort, which mm -hmm. no one is prepared to do. Yeah, some, I think, there. Uh, I wish I could name all these authors, but there's another essay around basically um, population density in cities mm -hmm. and then allowing for like rewilding. Mm -hmm. Oh yes, yes we saw that. the two. That's, no, yeah, 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 which is an interesting yeah, yeah. proposal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, quite compelling. And so I think, yeah, like, yes, let's move towards that. How do we do that? I mean, right. this, is, right. this is extremely difficult. So, I mean, what about the idea of like Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal, which seems like a both action-oriented, but c could have some very good healing aspects. I think she's a super interesting figure, actually, because she has married this um, democratic uh, identity, but also a, a working class identity in a way that's really, really, uh, to me, effective uh, so far. Um, and she's playing the social media game really well. And she's kind of, she's the Those only glasses. one who's really, <laughs> yeah. No, she's a great, no, she is excellent. the best she's politician perfect. around she's right now, regardless totally of perfect. your policy yeah, yeah, yeah. or beliefs of yeah. that. She's in terms Killing of communicator, she's yes. the anti-Trump yeah. as far as knowing how to use social media, mm -hmm, yeah. etc. Yeah, she's kind of taking Trump to task. Like she's she's super savvy, um, and she's doing things that the Democrats haven't really done or wouldn't really do. Um, yeah, like sort of sassy uh, in a tweet declarations that are that are pretty reductionist sometimes. Yeah. But that's what. Trump does. Right. Um, and she doesn't do it in like a Michael Avenatti way. She's doing it in a, yeah, like <laughs> yeah. an effective, yeah, yeah. feminine way. Yeah. I don't know, honestly. It's yeah. And I, so I think she's she's a really encouraging example of the direction this can go. She's a youthful voice. She's 28, 29. Yeah. yeah. I she, mean, would, she would probably win. Younger than she Jesus. Would, yeah, she's younger than Jesus. <laughs> she would win, I think, the last election if, if she was actually older yeah, than Thrawn. Beto or her, she would have a better shot. She would have a better shot. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. yeah hands down. She's not even 30? No. Nope. No. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what I do predict is that okay, the next Senate election in, in New York, 2022, Schumer's up for re-election. She's going to take Schumer's Right. Seat. I think that. So and then after 2024? That, and then 2024, 2026, or or, then yeah, she yeah, runs for president yeah, yeah, yeah. and wins. Right, right, I right. Think. I mean, yeah. right. So she'll be giving speeches from boats in Times Square. <laughs> so, so I think so. Yeah. I, so going back to the new, uh, the new Green Deal, I think this is really a great. Um, I mean, it's it's a thing that's branded in in such an interesting, good way, in my opinion, because it is so inclusive of the youth, which 
again, are going to be disproportionately affected by climate change. So their, their voice, in a sense, like they carry more share of voice, in my opinion, on this, mm-hmm. this topic. Yeah, and the new Green Deal exposes that um, generational gap and that, that differential. So uh, she also is in many ways speaking for the working class. So she has this concept of, it's a buzzword in the industry, it's just transition, um, which is transitioning mm. those working class jobs to renewables in a way mm. that's fair and deeply considers them. And she really puts a lot of other politicians to shame by you know, living this example, like she was a bartender. She has that, scare quotes, authenticity about her. <laughs> but it's real, it's legit, yeah. yeah um, which is persuasive. I think part of her political journey and the effectiveness of it will be around exposing Trump, uh, exposing a lot of wealthy Republicans as a kind of false god of the working class um, and positioning herself and neatly in place. I think that's the main thing is her positioning herself against that. Cleaning the algae out of the swamp. <laughs> exactly. I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm always going to be the more pessimistic one. I think it's great politics, the Green New Deal. It's like, for her, awesome. For the Democrats, something that they should have been proposing for so long. Right. They've been wanting to have an infrastructure bill. This is something that Trump wants even. Right. Just make it more greenwashed. I mean, and enough, that's effective politics. I am very skeptical about it doing much because it still is based off of this expansionistic, capitalistic way of growing our way out of the problems. And sure, that's going to be good for Quarterly returns comes down Again, to that. Exactly. We're, still, we're still lorded over so by that. So to get even, even more pessimist, I'd like to look at the case study of the Black Death. Mm-hmm. Um, which was... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, horrible tragedy. I don't know exact percentage of Europeans that were New wiped Models out. New Black Death series t-shirts <laughs> no, coming, but, coming but, next. But seriously... <laughs> feel like you need to like put it in quotes You're like i know it was a horrible tragedy i'm gonna talk about music as a positive example no, but, the, but i yes. know it was horrible. i'm not i'm not trying to endorse the black death here <laughs> i'm gonna maybe try to endorse the black death here <laughs> i'm not saying we should engineer one but what happened is really interesting afterwards it basically more or less ended feudalism there was a labor shortage everywhere for the yes, first time steve people- bannon yes it did <laughs> You for the first it. time, also the 1940s, 1948, 950, sure, early yes, 50s. destruction yes. of fixed capital is what allows for change yes, and yes, for yes. social progress. Well, there's a feminist ne- narrative: kill 10 percent of all men. hundred. <laughs> okay, seriously, in in the hundred years after the Black Death was probably one of the best times to be a working class or peasant in Europe. Basically, there was a, a whole new realm of opportunities. There was mobility between cities in a ways there wasn't. So. Yes, the elites are planning for this because they're going to be the ones that, you know, survive from it. But there is maybe something to be said for the need for a massive level of creative destruction. And the only, and like you say, the slap in the face, Black Death is a slap in the face. <laughs> and that is the kind of thing that will change people's policies. And feudalism ended because of that. Like, there is a big decisive shift that would only have come from some kind of crisis like that. It wouldn't have come from guilt or shame or individual choices or trying to make lords treat their peasants better, you know, their serfs better. So, I don't know. I think maybe we need something like that. Okay, I have a question then. I was really impressed by Roy Scranton's Learning How to Die in the Anthropocene when it was published in the New York Times some now five or so years ago um, with a certain acceptance of the fact that things are going to change a lot. And, you know, there's a relief in that, right? Like you can struggle or else you can accept and also optimize resilience, not resistance, et cetera. 
obviously resilience must be a big thing on a policy level, but how about this preparation for potential like massive population loss or population shifts as, as you know, the migrant crisis will only continue to grow as, as you know, the equatorial regions are further pressed. What is the kind of narrative building experience on a, a kind of EU policy level for preparing an entire population um, for what it seems to be more or less inevitable? <sighs> yeah, I mean, that, that really differs from country to country. You have, um, for example, at last year's COP, the president of Fiji or prime minister of Fiji um, pledging to uh, accept climate migrants from neighboring islands that have been submerged. So you you have these individual courses of action. Can it be coordinated at an international level somehow? That is what the UN, what the cops are about. This Mm. year they're creating the Paris agreement rulebook um, that would define how to, for one thing, how to measure carbon, you know, across industries, and it gets really granular. So I would assume that human rights consideration exists there along with climate migrants, but it's, it's an incredibly (laughs) thorny issue. It's, it's, I, I mean, I personally think that there is not the level of preparation that this issue necessitates. Like, I don't see it happening at the moment because I think there is so much political entanglement at play here. Um, And that's concerning. Right. Absolutely. Well, personally, I think everyone should walk into nature. This is another thing. If you want to, like, I, okay, this is really precious, um, but why I got into environmentalism, uh, yeah, being Canadian, going camping, of course, this this all contributed to it. But, um, you know, when I was 10, I, I, my father ran down into the basement. It was my 10th birthday, brought me upstairs. And I saw the Northern Lights, like, (gasps) above the suburbs in Canada. And, And it felt like, it did feel like a spiritual experience in the sense that I was accessing something that was really inscrutable. Uh, and it made me extremely passionate about, well, astronomy for one thing, but also nature more generally. And I think this is maybe, again, going back into narratives and personal agency, like what you can cultivate in yourself that might be helpful is just <laughs> buying a houseplant, you know, connecting <laughs> with, with nature and whatever we can, like learning how to nurture something. And that's going to change like your mindset in a way. And I don't think, yeah, this is going to, you know, at a personal level, this is going to catalyze a mass change and this yeah. is going to save everyone. But, it, you know, from a perspective of like one thing, mental health, but mm. also just your personal like agency in the world, I think that can be really important. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, hundred percent endorse that from a mental health perspective for sure. I have houseplants. I even have some stick insects and <laughs> I don't, I just have some inherent and empathy for them that yeah. like keeping them alive makes me feel like I have the bare minimum <laughs> of like an accomplished person. I feel connected no children, to something. Stick insects. Stick insects and some houseplants that, yeah. you know, that I really feel I've cried over, I've cried over some sickly stick insects because I neglected them. It's my fault. You know, I do, it, it's true. You know, having this personal stewardship, yeah, it, it matters. Yeah. And just going into nature, I, I, we're all cosmopolitan people. We spend all our time, we like, I think we've deluded ourselves that we need to like be near cool events, but we uh, don't. Not me. <laughs> no, but, but a lot of people <laughs> no. have, but no, we don't. Because like, actually, seriously, I, the, the times yeah. that I can remember being the happiest Love being outside. this year was just being without any LTE yeah. and being in the Redwoods definitely, or something. Definitely, Also being on a beach where I had really good LTE once. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Do you think a perfect jealous? combo. But, but no, seriously. Tropical Wi-Fi. Yeah, that yeah. was my old Twitter name. <laughs> 
definitely get that but one back. That's the thing. So it's ma- about making the invisible more visible. Right. Um, and that, that relates to your food and uh, like your clothing, other aspects of your life. And the start, like when you start really thinking about these things, it changes the way you interact with the world. Right. It changes your political alignments. Um, so I, I do think these are helpful things to focus on that also have the advantage of being good for your mental health. Right. I mean, when people talk about food and they say, oh, all these young people hate the chemicals in the food and these chemicals are really just parts of natural things. And, and it's like people aren't necessarily objecting to quote, quote, chemicals. They're objecting to level of distance from what they're putting in their bodies. It's a frustration of not being able to access where the ground is. It's right. It's a level of abstraction that they're objecting to. It's Which not is- necessarily... What Ted Kaczynski was arguing. I mean, like I, I know the, the, the all TED talks. Ted talks, ideas yeah. you can we're, mail. Ted talks, ideas yeah, gonna, are worth spreading. No, yeah, but of course, do, uh, his his fundamental critique, and I think it's true about why people feel alienated to society, is our inability to have any sense of immediate agency. You, you, you right you know, in capitalism you in soy yeah. and no, I mean yeah, exactly. no, of it, it's like the kind of zombie food. And you feel like you can't actually. Yeah. You don't know where it comes from. You brew some kombucha at home. You have a little semblance of that, and right. yeah, you feel I don't know in touch with these processes. I do think it's it's mental right. health, right? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah, and eat some shrooms. <laughs> I mean, despite the massive amount of hallucinogens tech has taken, like they're still falling into the same old. Yeah. Like greed. So greed what about tech? And, yeah. And like, what, what's, what, what, what is, about tech? And like Elon Musk, like, you know, like it's easier for the, Elon Musk to put like to terraform Mars than to like do something, what, you know, that's, about. That's the, actually so scary to I me. I have to is always the just be that, the devil's advocate here. But if we can learn how to terraform Mars, we can definitely have the technology to terraform Earth. That's what I was I know, about to say. Why not like spend all that money on like trying to fix home? Because there's man. no political will for it because it's not exciting because people aren't behind How, it. I mean, one idea is that NASA since like the, you know, after in the late 80s has been basically like a climate change yeah, yeah. like test yeah. site, right? With the, right. the biosphere or whatnot, like what can we do? But yeah, is it a narrative question? Is it that, is it this? I think this is a super interesting yeah. also, thread. Uh, to bring it down to the question I want to ask, what is tech doing right and what's, what's tech doing wrong right now? Yeah. In terms of big tech. Well, yeah, it's a big question. So, I mean, I, w- I would just point back to the nature-based solutions, honestly, like that this is something we can kind of ground ourselves in. And that can that can involve a certain amount of technology. My opinion is like the best technologies we can look towards are just, frankly, the more boring ones. Like we need to transition to renewables. So let's get wind power, let's get solar up to par. Um, let's create like electric airplanes. I mean, they're yeah. testing fleets like in Norway already. Mm-hmm. Um, of course there's lithium ion supply. I mean, this is tapping yeah, into a natural- li- well, yeah, well, they got the fluoride batteries now yeah. looking so very promising. Okay. There needs to be supply considerations there. Um, but uh, I don't know if you know Bertram Picard. Uh, this is a super fascinating figure, by the way. I don't invite know. you to look him up. Yeah. He's, he's really interesting. He's this like very handsome, bald Swiss man who um, who's, I think, grandfather. Um, Sorry, his st- name again? Bertram? Bertram Picard. So yeah, Swiss- Picard with a B? Picard. Picard, uh, like yeah, the yeah. captain. Like, like yes. it, because his, his grandfather, I think, was the model for uh, Captain Picard. Captain Picard. Yeah. yeah. From <laughs> TNG. So this is, <laughs> this is like, I love it already. Um, but he uh, he's a aeronautical explorer. He constructed the first solar airplane uh, and flew it around the world a few years ago. Oh, maybe I actually heard him. I heard him speak at this at DLD and it was a fascinating talk. Huh, yeah. He's he was the only one interesting on the panel. And then it was like Tino Segal being like, I would love to fly on that plane. 
No, <laughs> and, this is, and this is the kind of thing, like, I think this can be, like, paired with the nature-based solutions. This is really handy because I, I don't know if people will give up flying, you yeah. know? So let's find a way to make flying sustainable yeah. that looks like solar. I mean, solar is the optimal option here. He has a lot of iteration to do on his design. It was under certain weather conditions, but it's a start, you yeah. know? Um, so this is the thing that excites me is our, our technologies that just don't necessarily compromise modern society, but just very seamlessly integrate. And I think that's these are the sort of things that will get more public and political support as well. Right. You have to, I mean, I guess as a comms operator, you're always thinking about how to like peak the public's fantasy space, not demoralize them completely. Right. So yeah. these can be really useful accelerators for that. Well, there's a lot. You wrote this essay about conspiracies and how to fight them. Also, I mean, interestingly, how narcissism is such a big part of it, which I really agree with. And I, and I know this too from people I know who have been really into conspiracy theories. There's such a pleasure at feeling like you know the secret. It's like what being a hipster is. It's about like this exactly. a priori Actually. knowledge. It's right, but hipster and that are both coming from a place of, of I mean, not that hipsters are exactly marginalized, but but via, you know, in comparison to their parents, they're 24, 25, 26, super educated with no way into the workforce. So they're going to create, they're going to take that stance just like most conspiracy theories are most attractive to those classes or those groups of people that are unable to access the benefits of the mainstream. So I think it reflects like a deep insecurity, right? Like, um, and this speaks to capitalism in a really important way. The reason why a lot of utopias are a post-scarcity society is because <laughs> that creates like security for everyone on like every level, like a social security, economic security, physical security. Um, and so I think what we're seeing with the uptick in conspiracy theories proliferated on social media platforms, but as related to climate change is just an expression of those anxieties. For sure. This is, um, again, the James Bridle book, you know, which, um, uh, the new dark age. Right. Um, well, middle ages, dark ages. There were no dark ages. Right, right. There or was something. just the inability to, to record what was taking place during these times. I thought it was really interesting as you kind of just laid out these easy steps for scientists to like use lay terminology yeah, and be better debaters and study rhetorics mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. offer more countercritics. And then I thought too, though, I think making it personal, like maybe always trying to bring this conversation to a personal level. Like, I mean, I could just off the top of my head, I was thinking like, um, you're pro-life. Why are you killing your great grandchildren and have like a picture of you eating a steak? I don't know, you know, just like I mean, you need a copywriter for the end of the it, world. But I think I don't know. In a way, maybe shifting narratives towards like the more personal or the more individual. Shame, wor shame works on leftists though, right? But it does not work on the right. Well, but killing babies Different kinds works of on shame. the right. That's not true. Different kinds of shame. I mean, if you were a 25 year old man and you were still living at home and you were living right. in a right wing family, you okay. would be shamed into. Yeah, getting yourself you're, a fucking you're right. job. Yeah, you're right. So, you're right. right. Yeah, so it's, that's super, super interesting because, I mean, yeah, with these narratives going back, they do need to be poised to different groups. So you do have something like the working class that might have this more like family-oriented narrative that's effective. If I, I was rich, like instead of a Ferrari, I would buy like a windmill. Ooh. And like they look cool, and like Ooh. just like windmill as status symbol. That's cool. Well, yeah, cool. you have like all these like philanthropists buying like bathroom doors at like you know the Whitney Museum. Why can't they just like buy a windmill, I put know. their name on it, and then have have that like right. live feed in the bathroom on the bathroom wall at the Whitney? Why there you go. Sponsor windmills. And yeah. also, actually, this is a question though, because you might you might know more about in terms of laws that make it prohibitive 
to like build, just build a windmill. Is it difficult? Are there kind of these impediments to people just buying a wind generator? Is there any change that could happen there politically for, to make it easier? I think this is, for me, it touches upon this concept of regulation, which is where a lot of I think I consider this like a lever of change where a lot of action can happen. If you look at a literary cultural concept like solar punk, that's a lot around people bootstrapping their own solar rigs, you know, on their on their roofs, uh, in their homes, etc. That's post-apocalypse. Though, yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, you do have some hobbyists, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't know. This maybe is segueing to something totally different, but I. I heard something super compelling recently, which was around regulation. Uh, and so we have this whole conversation around data protection, what, what the, everyone's concerned about. And then you have GDPR here in Europe, and that was like swiftly enabled, you know. And then now we have to consent to cookies on websites, basically. Right. So a, a person working in green innovations who kind of posited that, like, why don't we have the same decisive measures around green policy like they you know they specifically were working for a pension company like that would basically ensure that you like transparency around investments and like that your pension was going towards like green companies and this kind of thing so I thought that was super interesting is like why can't we just have a GDPR style plural green actions um, like what? What's the difference there? And I, I like this to me is a super interesting question because, mm-hmm. and and this is again where I come back to communications. Like we talk so much around data protection around social media, it just became this monster that we all needed to address, you know. And it was catalyzed by like Cambridge Analytica and then certain events. But it's kind of like we have those same events around climate change. Like why can't we have the same assertive? measures around regulation. Mm. I, my question with that is just like, we don't seem to even agree on what the green solutions are, like closing down nuclear plants in Germany. Uh, coal rate is up higher than it has been in decades yeah. now. I mean, even I know wind coal. power, there, there are certain environmentalists who feel, oh, this messes with the pattern, burn pa- exactly. flight migration oh, yeah. pattern. Solar pan- <laughs> and then so- where are they building solar panels in Germany when it's dark and it's gray and it co- gets covered in dust? There's all sorts of issues. And I don't think any of these alternative energy things are like clean, clear solution. Fusion, in theory, could be one day. fifty. It's always 50 years off in the future. I just feel like this is something that we... We it's a we we're, it's, we can't we can't just transition into better energy and like how how why are we can't gonna, we just transition into better well, energy? How many I mean, people are not? We can. Uh, do you think like everyone that. deserves to have a middle class lifestyle in the world? I mean, but I mean, you do it country by country like again. Lower middle I class. Mean, D- does everybody? Do we have the deserve? Case? But I think deserve that. But why does that have word. to be the? Does why that, does that do you have to think be that, that it should be? I mean, I agree that that should be like I would want to be at least lower middle class. I think everyone else has the right to have that kind of I mean, lifestyle, but, to have a fridge. Well, right. it depends on where you're defining lower middle class. I mean, I, but the question is like, why can't con- why can't this happen country by country or region by region? I mean, well, in in baby steps, like like why? Well, it is, it, and that's the point. Is that okay? I mean, for instance, in China, yes, their economic policies have lifted more people out of poverty in the shortest period of hi- history ever. At what expense? Uh, ecologically, right, huge, right, right, and right, right. We have to just okay apply that to Africa. China is building the same type of infrastructural projects there. It is undeniably a good thing for those people. Well, there's all sorts of problems about whatever. Undeniably, it's going to raise their standards right. of livings from this type of thing. But how can we have 15 billion middle class people without fusion, without terraforming, mm-hmm. without massive technological things? I just don't. 
I just don't get it. I just don't see how. I just don't see the solution. I I want to so badly, <laughs> but it just seems like there's all these different con- confluences of problems, and you can solve one of them, and then the other one, and then then there's the other. I mean, one. So sounds- Dan, you're gonna die from the plague, or just <laughs> off yourself? I'm gonna go live in the woods. I'm gonna probably have a dog. <laughs> I might start growing weed. I'll collect mushrooms. You're gonna eat the wrong mushrooms. Obviously, that's yeah, gonna happen. Just like I'm into the wild. Right. Yeah, you're gonna be into the wild. I'm gonna not have kids. That's my one. That's you're gonna have my... only sick insects. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds to me like again we have this problem where it's like, how do we think clearly? It's kind of the thing in the beginning. The human mind is incapable of thinking of a system right now that could that can take hold of all these different threads, and that seems to be the big problem. Climate change is much easier to say like oh your shirt isn't organic why are you like talking about climate change if you don't wear and focusing micro focusing on one you know hypocrisy than trying to cut clear paths across things our shirts are organic though just fyi but yes (laughs) um but but and fair trade etc but yeah i mean that seems like that is that is it's like the climate change problem is before anything well two things one it's the communication question and two it's just the how the structural problem of how Mm. to even approach this yeah like cross-cultural, cross-national <gasps> exactly. uh, effort in concert. I mean, yeah. this is, it's, it's hugely am- ambitious. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, this is, I, it is the most difficult problem, in my opinion, that the earth has faced, right? So right. I, I, don't, I don't have a, an easy answer there. And I don't know if there's going to be some grand innovation that's going to address a lot of these issues. Um, I think, I mean, what I, if I could speculate i think there will be leaps uh in terms of technology that really perform well in terms of carbon sequestration and mm-hmm. and these sort of things um potentially terraforming but i you know i can't speak to that right. in, a, in a way that's meaningful i mean yeah. maybe i do like this idea that we we oftentimes say lots of terrible negative things about you know big tech and um you know web2 social media but just imagine if you were to mobilize that reach yeah. towards narratives mm. that actually did act, you know, if it can infect minds with all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories, why can't it also push people towards a common understanding of what's going on and with climate everyone change? everyone can keep Googling, what is climate change? What is climate yeah. change? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, I, I think, I'm just kidding. I'm I, I just think kidding. like, you know, if there is, you know, we're saying, oh, how do you cut clear paths across so many different, right. like, you know, specific uh, cultural customs and values and metrics? Well, you know, that's the one great innovation that Facebook book has given us it has a me- global metrics right. on, a, on a personal individual basis mm. that does chunk data but also presumes that or it tries to imagine each each person as an individual so maybe there's great potential in these platforms yeah definitely i i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is this is where it gets murky uh, ethically and i i I have friends who work with machine learning um, Mm. who have claimed that absolutely the tide can turn on climate change opinion um, via behavioral modification, via social media. And and to me, this is... Wow. This is very thorny to me. (laughs) We talk about cyber Hitler, Julian. This is... (laughs) No, there needs to be... I I mean, I I just want to say, it's like, yeah, we have to, from a utilitarianist moral ethical framework how much suffering do we need to accept to have a better outcome if uh, let's say six billion people die and that's what's necessary for in 2100 to have 
3 billion people living uh, hyper-luxury communism, lifestyles, post-scarcity, etc. Where Where is the trade-off? Where do the means justify the ends? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there's any clear answers to this. But yeah, things sometimes get better after a horrible crisis than mm-hmm. they were before. And it's usually easier to pick up the pieces than it is to prevent things, is all I can say. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the ultimate dilemma we're dealing with now, and also that's what they want. That's what they want. <laughs> Learn to forage, guys. <laughs> Quick break to remind you, our main aggregation site is newmodels.io. You can always reach out to us with tips, links, things that should be on our radar at desk at newmodels.io. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash newmodels. Up next, Christine LaRiviere shares some inside info on foraging in the greater Berlin-Brandenburg area and shares a recipe that you can use with any wild greens you forage in your city. Of course, this all got us one step closer to realizing Dan's and Prim dreams, so it's very, very special. Hope you enjoy. What are some good things to forage near Berlin? I know oh, you yeah. don't want to like like tell all your like secret oh. spots, but maybe mm. just like generally Mycelial networks. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, one thing is around springtime, around May, you get um, burst of what's called Berliner Barlock or oh, Wunderlock, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is super yummy. Yeah. It's like green onions, um, and you can literally forage this in like Trap Tower Park. You can just walk out, you'll smell this beautiful aroma, <laughs> and you'll see a bunch of really cool like Turkish grandmas just picking this, and like it was so. Fun because like last year, like I or this this year, I went uh, with my friend Flora and we were foraging, and there, yeah, these two dudes who were like, yeah, like it's good stuff. Like yeah, like this is super good. Um, So I made you know pesto. I also love cooking, of course. That's married nicely with foraging. Um, So you can make a a nice pesto out of that. You can infuse oil with this. Mm. Um, You can just have it raw on on different as like a garnish. Um, So that's one thing. Uh, And then you have greens that grow around Berlin, like. Like in different parks, even in uh, Grunewald, for example, you can get, uh, I mean, you can really find, it's called wild uh, goosefoot, white goosefoot. You can find this anywhere, and it's a green that's very similar to baby leaf spinach. Mm. Um, you can just bulk up your salad with it. It's really, really tasty. Uh, if you look for different bodies of water, um, I've, I've found watercress in different parts of the city, uh, even near parks and stuff, and you just kind of go into the water <laughs> and pick it. Nice. Um, and it's super, like it's super tasty. You can make soup from it. You can find uh, yarrow, which is also just wild and grows everywhere around the city. Um, and this you can make a tea from it alleviates menstrual cramps i'm also interested in just like natural um kind of remedies uh you can if you make a use willow bark you can make a tincture uh and this is the origin of aspirin so you can make a pain relieving tincture Um, so there's there's herbalism involved too and it's not you know i promise it's not pseudoscience this is actually how it works yeah Yeah. um and then yeah so and then as far as mushrooms this happens the season happens around late september um to mid-october late october depending and um this is more found around brandenburg but uh, a lot of the mycelial networks especially for porcinis uh, in Berlin, there's a mushroom called marron, um, which is, uh, I guess, chestnut, I think. It's a chestnut color. It's very similar to porcinis, though, a bit smaller. 
and you can find these all around Brandenburg. But uh, yeah, it's heavily guarded secret. Um, <laughs> there are like mushroom cults, I don't know, where people um, <laughs> will not disclose <laughs> where these mycelial networks are when you find them. But they, they're around Berlin uh, and Brandenburg. Well, maybe we can at least forage um, for some Barlach with you uh, in the It would in the be a great um, like new models workshop in the spring, <laughs> for sure. Some pro, some By pro, lottery some, only, because yeah, you probably I, don't want more than like, true, people true. to know Patreon about these mycelial. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a greater prepper course. Yeah. Makes sense. Berlin's actually very it's, state it's of nature. Low, it's like at sea level, but and the canals do. Did you say Etsy level? It's at sea level. <laughs> oh, at sea level. I thought you meant Etsy level, which is also kind of at sea level. It is definitely at sea level. There's no crocheting. At sea level. At sea level. Wow, that's good. Um, I remember one the one question I had. What is like on net? the easiest thing you can do that makes the biggest difference for mm. climate change? That's go. such a good question. Um, I would say it's, it is going vegan or being as vegan as possible. Mm. Um, just, and that's, that's like a little thing. And I promise you can make really good food that that's vegan. Um, I have tried the worm burger mm -hmm. I, like I have, and it's, it is yummy. <laughs> like wor worm? It's made of worms. Yeah. Oh that's um, not vegan. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's true. That's true. But it's it's ecological. No yeah. brain. Yeah. Maybe no food with brains. <laughs> yeah. Or um, and it is yummy. And it's so abstracted from its source, you know, in the way that a, a steak is or a chicken nugget is uh, that you won't notice. It's, it tastes a lot like it's like a falafel. Uh, I liked it. Um, so, but yeah, I, I try to cook vegan at home. Uh, and occasionally, once in a while, I will eat meat, um, probably more than I should. Uh, mea culpa, but I do try to go for uh, grass-fed beef if possible, and then uh, wild boar. So think, you know, things that are kind of in the habitat. You can also go hunt for wild boar in Berlin, right? <laughs> so can, there's another yeah. thing we do after foraging. <laughs> how, how bad is dairy? Just uh, like from, from a one to from ten. A carbon, from a carbon, carbon, carbon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, because it's it is kind of under the same. Essentially, cows release methane. Yeah, they. They fart a lot. That's the, the gas that's released um, en masse. And that, that's really, so that's kind of blind to whether or not they're being consumed. Well, but, but or the cow could dairy. make dairy for a long time, but you can only eat it once. So, uh, so more uh, methane if right. it's dairy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's I did read this article that Stanford was experimenting with adding algae to, thank you, Carson Chan, for this great article, um, the uh, algae to, the, to cattle diets, and that it was drastically reducing the amount of methane. Mm. Because or something was only happening eat in veal because they've also not farted as much. <laughs> oh. Okay. Oh, okay. We're, we're not ending on a positive note. <laughs> no, we're not. Actually, we should ask you for one of your recipes. What we should do? We should ask With you for foraging. Like, yeah, for one year, like a good vegan recipe that maybe includes some 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 local oh. local yeah um, uh, ingredients. Okay. Well, yeah, you could do a, a really nice simple um, watercress soup. Just forage a bunch of watercress and blend them together with potatoes, a little bit of vegetable stock, water. And like you can keep it super simple because actually the whole thing about foraging is that these ingredients are so fresh. They're so delicious. Yeah. And you don't have to be a top chef to make a meal taste really, really good totally. when, the, when the, the ingredients are foraged. And this is what Michelin star totally restaurants do. It's yes. what Noma does. Yes. Right. This is the big secret is just have extremely fresh ingredients. So it's such a pleasure to go forage, forage some fresh porcinis, for example, and you come home and you're like <gasps> living in luxury. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I encourage everyone to um, go into the forest, learn to forage a little bit, or at least just, yeah, just appreciate nature a little more. Definitely foraging. And with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm and down. Do. I'm so down. Okay. I'm going to do a, like some like Anne Prim, you know, attitude or something. Maybe like extra gear. You murder the uh, forage competitors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can braid the their hair networks. into cloth for your shirt. I mean, there's exactly. a, a scandal in Germany, like the Porcini scandal of oh people like uh, outsiders uh, discovering the mycelial networks and just exploiting them. And, and, and that we're, you know, it's a little sad because German families can't, you know, they can't bring their kids out to forge mm. these nice mushrooms. Damn. And indeed, when I was out there this year, oh, it, the competition was fierce. Um, <laughs> I found a lot of like immature specimens, but you make mm. do. Yeah. <laughs> Great. All well, right. Wow. That was a partially inspiring, partially depressing conversation. Which no, was totally about what inspiring. I from- also, somewhat harrowing. That's it's just that it's harrowing. Harrowing. Any conversation about climate change is harrowing. Gonna, uh, harrowing. Right. Maybe that's better. Uh, I, maybe that's. Well, better I have an idea yeah. of, on on how to make a greener planet and solve America's opiate crisis at the same time, which is just plant poppies everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> We never got into the narc, the like uh, narco green solution for the the earth. Growing weed must be better for the climate than palm oil, for instance, right? right. Hemp is definitely so. more sustainable. There you go. That's actually not a bad idea, though. Poppies and hemp everywhere. Cat that like yeah, right. Yeah. right. We get some cat the for the next time. Yeah, just saying, like you know, beetle nuts. <laughs> like just what do you have? Like a pharmacopoeia. Like you know, that, that's the way. That, you know, honestly, if it is like billions must die, then like please, let's just like billions like, just, must like, die. Like, Hi. Like exactly. Yeah. Like at least sedate yourself. Like, exactly. That's the huge thing. Now, 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 now we have a good vibe yeah, for new, new models model podcast. Model. <laughs> 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 All right. No, any shout outs though? Should we Christine, do you have any shout outs you want? Oh yeah. Is there anything you want to shout out? You don't have to, but I'm I'm working on a talk currently, so that should be released in the next month or two. and I guess you can follow me on Twitter at CD La Rivière. L-A-R-I-V-I-E-R-E. Cool. Um, And any, any like, good organizations that you think are, like, really interesting or foundations that we should be following? Yeah, totally. I mean, little little things you can do. Um, Switch your browser to Ecosia. They plant trees when you search online. Say that again. What's it called? Ecosia. Uh Uh, And then, uh, yeah, one one organization we're working with that's interesting is C40 Cities. And they're the ones also working with city mayors to do, like, uh, energy efficient retrofits and things like this. So they're doing good stuff. But yeah, lot, lots to lots to mention here. Okay, follow your feed and you can yeah. get daily tips or yeah, cool new models podcast X. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to all our Patreon members who sent their 2019 in and out list. Look out for them on our Twitter. And if you want to get closer to our discussions, consider joining our Patreon at Patreon.com/newmodels. We don't do tier feudalism, so check us out. Shout out to everyone who submitted lists or links, whether we post them or not. Benedict Fisher, Stephen Warwick, Best Napper Alive, Taylor Wagstaff, Gert Lovink, Joe Shermer, Taylor Maxson, Jakob Witz, Toby Shoren, Edward Lawrence, Spencer Tweedy, Alfred English, Charlie Robin Jones, and all the Anons out there. Our Series 1 New Models t-shirts are sold out, but look out for Series 2. See you next episode. Thank <sighs> you.